Before we start today's episode, I want to announce that Brain Science is now available on Pandora. So if you use Pandora, you can subscribe just like you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps. Podcasts are a brand new feature on Pandora, so I'm really proud that Brain Science is part of the inaugural rollout. Welcome to Brain Science, the podcast that explores how recent findings in neuroscience are unraveling the mystery of how our brains make us human. I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell, and this is episode 154. Today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Alan Castell, author of Better With Age, The Psychology of Successful Aging. Now I know what some of you might be thinking, I don't want to talk about aging, I'm young. However, the point of this episode is that our attitudes and what we do when we're younger are going to impact what happens to us and whether we are successful at aging. So I hope that you will listen whatever your age. You can send me feedback about this episode by writing to brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com or posting voicemail at speakpipe.com forward slash docartemis. You'll find the complete show notes and episode transcripts at brainsciencepodcast.com. As, as always, I'll be back after the interview to review a few key ideas and make a few brief announcements. Alan, it's great to have you on Brain Science, and I'm looking forward to talking about your new book. Thank you. It's great to be here. So before we talk about your book, Better With Age, The Psychology of Successful Aging, I'd like you to just tell us a little about your background and how you ended up doing this. Absolutely. Well, I am a psychologist. I'm not a clinical psychologist, so I mostly do research and teach. I stumbled into the field of cognitive psychology because I was interested in how memory works. And I had some early exposure to this as a child with older grandparents who had impressive memories for the past, but would also confuse my name with my brother's name often, something my parents would still do as well. And then in high school, I tried to you know, learn chemistry and biology, and I did it the old-fashioned way, really just memorizing things. And I was good at it. I could memorize the entire periodic table because I made up a mnemonic, like a little rhyme that used each letter of the element uh, in a story or song that made sense to me. And so I got good grades in high school for this sort of behavior. But then in college, I realized I wasn't really interested in chemistry and biology because I also didn't have this deeper understanding. And so I stumbled into the field of cognitive psychology, how people learn, how people remember, and how that changes as we get older. So that's how I ended up in this field. So how long have you been studying aging at this point? I've been studying aging for over 20 years now. So it's starting to apply to you a little. Yes, absolutely. I've, I have children who will remind me of my own memory errors, and they're certainly more frequent, and I'm probably more distracted than I used to be. So I think we all start to become aware of how our memory works when it doesn't work the way we thought it should. I was interested in hearing you talking about memorizing in high school and how easy it was. Ironically for me, although I went into medicine, I started out in engineering. And as an engineering student, there's not much role for memorizing. Your habit is, if I forget it, I'm going to derive it. So I was already out of the habit of memorizing by the time I got to medical school. But that was at a time when memorizing was still rewarded in medical school. So I struggled a little. Fortunately, real-life medicine is not so much about memorizing. What motivated you to write a book? I know it's a lot of work. Well, I think many people think about aging in negative ways, and there certainly are challenges as we get older. But in many ways, life can be very satisfying, especially even after midlife. We reflect back on our lives, what we've done, what we want to do, our family connections. So I really got interested in this concept of what it means to age well, because there were a lot of role models in my life, including my grandparents, but including friends and colleagues and teachers who are 30, 40, 50 years older than me now. 
and some of them seem to have aged really well and some not so well. And so I was wondering what influences the aging process. And we know biology plays a big role, but I think mindset really does matter. So I wanted to dig into that a little more to see what the research says and then what people say. Because when you talk to people, they'll give you some good insight as to what things they think help them age well. And one of the things you mentioned in the book is that the new research is really revealing some paradoxes in terms of what we think about aging and what actually happens. Could you just sort of address the idea of the paradoxes? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, we have negative stereotypes about aging. and We think as we get older, we'll be more depressed or cranky or grumpy. And this certainly isn't often the case. Many older adults report high levels of life satisfaction. They feel busy. They stay active, even in retirement. They might feel more confident about their own self, so have greater self-esteem and perhaps even less self-conscious. Better emotion regulation, being a more balanced person, yet still very curious to learn or focus on the things that are interesting. So I think most people are surprised to hear that rates of depression are typically higher in college-age adults than people over the age of 60 who are healthy. Happiness is kind of an elusive goal for many people, and it seems to suggest, the research at least, that the lowest peak is in midlife. And then as you get older, you get happier. And I think most people are sometimes surprised to hear that. Right. And you can't go by what you see in people who are in bad health because that skews the impression. I think that's one problem physicians suffer for is they they see unhealthy older people. And the healthy older people tend to stay away from the doctor. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think health plays a big role and, you know, health and being happy are often correlated. But I think we do have a lot of control over our happiness and then potentially our health if we have the right mindset about as we get older, things can become more challenging. There's definitely going to be some physical decline. So how do we combat that with the things we we can do to take care of ourselves? So it's true. If you're seeing a physician or a doctor, you might be having serious health concerns. But a lot of older adults do things that keep them away from relying on the medical model. How would you define successful aging? Well, successful aging can be thought of in many ways. And one way is being healthy. But some of it also has to do with psychological health. What's your perspective on aging? And what does it mean to be productive and happy in old age? So successful aging suggests there's winners and losers, but that's not really the truth. Another way to think about successful aging is meaningful aging. Are you aging and contributing to life the way you'd like to when you're 60, 70, 80? And sometimes that means retiring and pursuing something new and different, or sometimes that means continuing in your profession because you feel like it's a rewarding place to be. So I think there's a lot of variability in terms of what it means to be successful, and we almost have to figure that out because for each person, it can be different. Is there a way that we can reliably predict, or how do we reliably predict if someone's going to age successfully? What do we know about that? Well, it's a great question, and biologically we can look at genes, but genes only tell us a portion of the story, and a lot of that is just the likelihood that you'll develop some disease or other things that are related to aging. I think one thing that is a good predictor is their attitude about aging. And we can ask people early in life, how do you think about aging? What do you expect in 20, 30, 40 years? And if people have a positive attitude, they're more likely to then engage in behaviors that can help them as they get older. Whereas if people think it's kind of all a decline and there's nothing you can do, and as soon as you start forgetting things, that's probably a sign of what's going to happen in 10 years you might then not try and do things that can be helpful, such as changing habits or diet. And we know things like physical exercise, things as simple as walking can be some of the best activities you can do, especially as you get older. So if people think old age is about frailty, they might be then less likely to engage in behaviors that can actually help them as they age. Right. And of course, you talk a lot there, I guess, in terms of habits, the habits we form when we're young are going to have a lot to do with what happens just when we get older. 
you mentioned in the book that addiction was a negative predictor. <laughs> All these famous people that are addicts and die obviously sort of show us that. But I was surprised to read that being president of the United States is actually overall a predictor of living longer because when you're looking at people when they're president, they usually seem like they're aging right before your eyes. Well, it's certainly a, a stressful job, but one of the difficult things about assessing just, are, you know, is it stressful, is there's a lot of things in place that can help presidents, and a lot of that has to do with resources. So we can't do an experiment where we randomly assign someone to be president versus not so the people who tend to be president are definitely leaders. They're probably resilient. They've got a huge support staff. They have people cooking for them, cleaning for them. And those sorts of things might actually take a lot of burden off you. So even though you're, it's stressful in terms of the decisions you might make and the people who may or may not support you, by and large, presidents tend to live longer than the average American. You mentioned throughout your book the work of two other researchers. I've read both along Bright Future and Counterclockwise. And I'm curious as to how these books and the people who wrote them influenced your work. Well, th those books are really influential and important books, and they're written by researchers who are doing a lot of the new research in the field that shows that aging is not all about a decline. It's really about a difference or a change in goals. And after the age of 50, our goals are very different than when we're 20. So as we get older, we might focus more on emotion regulation, things that might make us happier. We might be less focused on things that you know are necessarily f to further our career necessarily. I think these books also show the power of psychology. That there's things like stereotype threat. That if we're if we think about aging in negative ways, then we're more likely to perform tasks in ways that are can lead to underperforming. So our expectations really do matter. And both of these books present a lot of really interesting research. They're written by leaders in the field, and they provided the motivation for me to look for role models of successful aging and then try and outline in my book what are some of the things that you can think of when you think of what it means to age well. So what are the specific challenges of trying to study aging? It's certainly a challenge because aging is a slow process at one level. So you can use research methodologies that just follow people over time, but that can be expensive and time-consuming. You know, if you really wanted to follow someone from age 8 till age 88, that would take several lifetimes for some researchers. So these longitudinal studies are useful, but they're not necessarily practical and they suffer from problems and that people will drop out of the study, people will die, people will move. So the types of research that are commonly done are cross-sectional designs where you compare younger people, like college students, to older people, typically retired, active, older people. And really that then turns into, you're not looking at aging necessarily, you're looking at just two different groups. And they certainly differ by 40 or 50 years, but like I said, their goals are different when you're 20 than versus when you're 60 or 70. And your memory is different, but our research has found that older adults can selectively remember things that are important. You know, you might remember things that are important if they're related to your grandchildren or if you need to selectively remember some bit of trivia that you find interesting that you want to tell your friend. Those are the things that older adults can remember and focus on. And sure, you might forget the names of people you recently met. Whereas younger people are pretty good at, you know, memorizing, especially in college or high school where that is a rewarding activity. So as we age, our goals change and what, the ways we remember things also change. Could you talk a little bit more about the way of remembering what you mean by that? Yeah, so our lab studies something called selectivity. And really, as we get older, our selectivity changes in terms of what we selectively remember. And we know memory is not an exact representation of the past. And we know memory is also reconstructive. You're taking bits and pieces and putting them back together like a puzzle. Older adults might be more selective about what puzzles they try and put back together, whereas younger people might have more access to a lot of information and can recall it in kind of a verbatim style. So one of my favorite studies shows that if you're given a story and you need to then tell it to uh, either an eight-year-old or a, an adult, 
younger people, college students, will read the story and then just tell it back with a lot of details. But older people will read the story and then kind of tell it back to the listener such that it's more appropriate for the eight-year-old versus the adult, perhaps leaving out pieces for the eight-year-old using simpler words. So older people might be more aware of the content that they're communicating and the listener, what the person needs or wants to know. And you could even imagine this at a more basic level. If someone asked you, how was your day? You might think, well, what what does the person want to hear? Do you want to hear every detail of what I've done today, like starting with breakfast? No, the person wants to hear kind of generally something good happened, bad, what's the main thrust of what happened. And I think as we get older, we're better at focusing on kind of the big picture and what we need to communicate and kind of forgetting some of the details. Are you still wishing that you could speak another language? If so, it's time to give Babbel a try. There are 14 languages to choose from, including Spanish, French, and even Polish. The lessons are short, only about 10 to 15 minutes each, and they were created by real people. The format is interactive, so you'll quickly gain the confidence you need to use your new skills in the real world. Plus, since Babbel is available both online and via a mobile app, you can take it wherever you go. You can give Babbel a try for free. Just go to babbel.com or download the app and try it for free. That's Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com or download the app to try it for free. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. And I think as we get older, we're better at focusing on kind of the big picture and what we need to communicate and kind of forgetting some of the details. Well, I'm 63, and I can certainly attest to the fact that I'm already experiencing that phenomenon. And I notice when I'm talking to younger physicians and they're giving me these long details about things, I'm sometimes thinking in the back of my mind, would you please just get to the point? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I think time is valuable, and, and so are our resources, right? We don't have as much you can read the report if there's a report on the patient. And really, I think that's almost what wisdom is, is kind of knowing what you need to know. And so we've looked at this in the context of meta-memory. So, you know, memory is remembering things from the past, but meta-memory is the level above that, kind of knowing what you need to remember, how confident you are about your memory. And older adults, in some ways, can be more astute in terms of knowing what they're going to forget, knowing what they're going to remember, knowing if they need to write something down as a strategy. And when we're younger, we don't really have this sense as much. And we might not need it because we, we remember a lot of things. So I think that's why things kind of change as we get older. It's, it's not just impairments. It's that we work with our memory. We compensate. And in many ways, like you were saying, we just want to get to the point. We want to kind of retain the, the gist, the big picture, the necessities. And it's fine if we forget some of the details. And I was really fascinated by one of the studies you described in the book about one of those classic word recall experiments. I know that it's well established that when they do these word recall experiments, people tend to falsely recall related words. If you saw a bunch of words that were on a certain subject, you might think you saw one you didn't read. Then when you give the same test, would you talk about how when you give the same sorts of tests to older people, how the results differ? Yeah. I mean, this is very similar to this remembering gist that if you give people a list of words to remember and all of the words are related to, let's say, the word sleep. So I present bed and rest, awake, clock, pillow. All you can think about is the word sleep. And then if I test your memory a few minutes later, older adults are more likely to recall sleep when, in fact, it wasn't on the list. And you can interpret this as a false memory, but you can also interpret it as older adults are kind of remembering generally the main theme of that list. (laughs) I think that's how memory works and changes as we get older, is that we might falsely remember certain things, but they're consistent with our interpretation of the past. And... 
you know, memory we know is reconstructive. It's not like a video camera. Older adults might realize that, well, I can't remember all the details, but I can remember some of the most important details. And I think that's important. I mean, if you met someone several times and later you can't remember their name, that's probably just a normal sign of aging. But it, you probably remember well that, you know, they were a lawyer and they told me an interesting case study and they have a two-year-old who plays on my son's soccer team. Those are kind of details that might be relevant to your day-to-day life. So are there theories about why we change as we age in terms of, of these sorts of things? I'm thinking of your, the qualitative theories you talk about in your book. Yeah, some of the theories are known as selective optimization with compensation. So as we get older, we selectively focus on the things we're good at or that we want to improve and compensate for the things that we're not so good at, really. Like if we don't remember names, maybe we write them down or maybe we decide, you know what, I'm not going to remember that person's name. I'll just have to ask them again. It's almost like a strategy that we become aware of. And another dominant theory is socio-emotional selectivity theory. And this theory suggests that as we age, our goals change. So we might be like information gatherers in our 20s or 30s when we're going to medical school and trying to prepare for a career. Whereas in our 70s or 80s, we might be more focused on emotionally meaningful goals. And that could be, you know, grandchildren. It could be making sure that we're at peace with ourselves. But it could also mean working in a scenario that is rewarding. So maybe if your job has been rewarding, you want to keep doing it. Or maybe you want to switch careers or volunteer. So you're almost spending your time wisely the way you think it's best to use what is a limited amount of time as we get older, especially. So these theories are not in opposition. They're really more complementary. Definitely. And in fact, they've, you know, one's grown out of the other. The predictions from these theories are very different than the decline theories that I think dominated research 50 years ago that really just showed, and these are truths as well, that as we get older, we get slower. Just even button pressing is or gets 50, 100 milliseconds slower as we get older. You know, we don't remember as much. We don't remember as accurately. Our balance changes. We're not as good at balancing. We don't sleep as well. So there's many processes that decline with age. But I think what's important is then considering are there ways we can compensate for some of them. And for some of them, you know, you're not going to get faster reaction times, but could you then drive more cautiously or maybe drive only during the daytime versus not at nighttime or drive, you know, in neighborhoods that you're familiar with. So you're not presented situations that require kind of quick reaction time. That's what to me is very interesting that even though there are lots of changes and challenges and declines as we get older, our brain and our body can adapt in ways that can be beneficial. And some of this is conscious. Like if you notice your balance is declining, and that's for me, I've noticed is a big thing. We, we typically worry about memory as we get older. But what I tell people is one in three people over the age of 60 are going to experience a fall. And that fall can result in a broken collarbone, arm, hip, puts you in a hospital, means you're not walking. Um, and we know walking, just exercise improves memory. So this is a big cascade function. So one thing we really need to focus on is having good balance. And you can train your balance. You don't need to go to a yoga class. You can do it at home. In fact, I do it while I'm brushing my teeth. I stand on one leg for one minute and then I switch legs. And some days I can do it and some days I can't. <laughs> you're only really aware of your balance when you have a fall. And so I think it's important to do this sort of balance training because that will keep you on your feet. It'll keep you active. And I think those are kind of the keys to maintaining good cognitive health, keeping your brain healthy. I want to talk more about these things that we can do to be healthier. But before I do, uh, I want to address the question of the causes of negative attitudes about aging. Some of it is cultural. We live in a Western culture. We don't tend to value, you know, some people grew up having grandparents in the house. And now oftentimes grandparents are shuffled off to retirement homes. And these differ greatly in terms of their level of care and quality. And our attitudes about aging are important because they're shaped early in life. So I think culturally, 
our attitudes about aging are important in terms of family that can be important. Different families approach this topic in a variety of ways. And that informs us about what we can expect in old age. And I think that's going to be even more important given the demographics that older adults can be a valuable resource and it's beyond just babysitting. And so how can we take care of an older generation and also honor their wishes while also getting benefits from this? Tribal cultures, other cultures, older adults are valued. They're valued both for, you know, to watch children while other people go and hunt, but also for their wisdom, just knowing what has happened in the past and how to predict the future. And I think we've veered away from that model considerably. And as a result, people don't feel valued as they get older. And the younger generation doesn't get these benefits of having wisdom and things that can be beneficial even at the level of childcare. So what about this issue about watching more television? In the book, you said people who watch more television tend to have more negative attitudes toward aging. Yeah, the media can certainly paint a negative picture regarding aging, and some of it is just in terms of selling products to older adults. And that might be changing a little bit, but the study I mentioned in the book just shows that people who watch more TV certainly have more negative stereotypes about aging, and that could then impact behavior. It could impact how we feel about older people, how we then ourselves age. Not that the media is to blame, but it's really how we look at youth versus aging. You know, there's a focus on staying young and living young forever, but that's just not practical. And at some point, you know, wrinkles are not something that we need to hide unless, you know, we feel like it makes us completely uncomfortable. Those issues are really important when we think about how we approach aging, because at some level it, it is physical. It's how we look. But most people, when you ask them how old they are, that number differs from how old they feel. And especially after the age of 40 or 50, people will actually report feeling 20% younger than their actual biological age. And it's not that we're trying to lie to ourselves. It's just that when we look in the mirror, we're, we're surprised to see so many wrinkles or, <laughs> you know, a big bald spot because we don't feel that age. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't act that age. You know, you should be aware of your age and train appropriately and balance. And if you need medication, do all those things. So you don't need to deceive yourself. But a lot of people say, well, I don't feel 70 or 80. That's why I'm not retired or that's why I don't feel frail. I think that's a big part of how old you feel is sometimes not how old you actually are. Let's talk just briefly about the famous nuns study. What what would you say is the take-home message in regards to today's conversation? Yeah, that was a classic study. And when we we're talking about how to study aging, it, it's it's hard to find a sample that you can follow for a long period of time. But one study looked at nuns and how they age. And this is a good group to follow because there's not a lot of dropout and they lead a lifestyle that's fairly predictable. And what was interesting here is concerning the biology of aging and comparing that with the psychology of aging. So we know that dementia and Alzheimer's disease can manifest itself in the brain with these plaques and tangles. And you can really only diagnose this disease at autopsy when you can look inside the brain and see these plaques and tangles. And so what they did is they followed these nuns over a long period of time and tried to determine which of them had dementia and which didn't. What they found is that a lot of the nuns at autopsy, when they looked at their brains, they noticed that they had the biological signs of Alzheimer's disease. But while they were living in their 80s and 90s, they didn't show any psychological or behavioral signs of Alzheimer's disease. So something special is going on there. It's almost like the hardware shows you have Alzheimer's disease, but your software, your living behaviors show that you don't. And that's important, I think, because it shows that we can combat the biological signs of aging if we have the right lifestyle, if we have the right attitudes, if we have the right social support, all the things these nuns might have had that could have then prevented them from showing signs of dementia, even though their brain showed signs of dementia. So it's important, as you emphasize early on in the book, to realize that biology is not destiny. 
And just because, for example, um, dementia runs in your family doesn't mean that you are doomed um, and that you should just give up and not bother with your lifestyle. (laughs) So let's talk about, well, what can we do? Let me ask you this, Alan. What are you doing since this is something that you study? You mentioned the standing on one leg at a time every day. Is there anything else that you're doing in your personal life that comes directly from your involvement in this field? Absolutely. I think having studied this and seen many older adults who seem to age well, I think some level of activity is important and it's both physical and mental. So a lot of the older adults I talked to were impressive examples because they couldn't stop their professional pursuits, let's say, or they couldn't retire, or they did retire, but they changed careers. So in terms of my own lifestyle and behavior in middle age, I really make sure I I have a certain level of activity and a certain level of balance. And I mean that in both the mental and the physical. So a level of activity, I think, is important physically. So walking, we know from research shows that If you walk three or four times a week, you'll have better memory than someone who doesn't walk three or four times a week. And that's both memory, but also the hippocampus, the part of the brain that's involved in memory, tends to decline by about 1% after the age of 50 in terms of its volume. But people who walk, even after just six months of walking three or four times a week, their hippocampus grew by 2%. So literally, your brain is growing and getting bigger. And so I make sure to get as much exercise as I can, and some of it is not high impact. You know, like I don't jog, but I do walk, and I I ride my bike, and I think that's both good for a stress release, but I also know it's probably a good habit to develop because a lot of the older people who I've interviewed who've aged well would say they, they walk as much as they can. And then having balance in life, balance both in terms of physical balance, like we talked about, but also mentally. I think you're always juggling kind of the work-life balance. And if you're working too much and you don't have time for family or yourself, that's not a good thing, but also the opposite. A lot of times when people retire, they feel like something's now missing in their life. They don't have that professional pursuit or they don't feel valued. So you need to find something that gives you that balance. And when I interviewed John Wooden, the famous basketball coach at UCLA who lived to the age of 99, He said the two most important words in the English language were love and balance. And he meant love in terms of finding the people you love and spending time with them, but also finding the pursuits that you love. And he was a very committed and successful basketball coach. And then again, this theme of balance comes up and he discussed this both physically and mentally, that you need to have balance in your life with your family, with your professional pursuits and also just staying on your feet. And he suffered a fall in his early 90s and broke his collarbone. He was laying on the floor for six or seven hours waiting for an attendant to come in the morning. And he was lucky that he lived through that. Those sorts of things are really issues as we get older, like how do we stay on our feet? And John Wooden is a very prominent character in the book as an example of a role model. And he is very unusual because... He retired relatively young, yet he lived into a healthy older age. So there's a lot there that we can learn from. Is there anything else that Coach Wooden said that you would really like to share today? Well, he was an impressive person. And in fact, when I set up my interview with him, you know, months ahead of time, he actually called me the night before to remind me that, you know, of our appointment the next day. So I thought, wow, this is amazing that a 94-year-old is calling me to remind me. The times we spoke were impressive, but when I asked him to summarize what are the keys to successful aging, other than saying those two important words of love and balance, he said, stay busy, stay active, and have some variety. I think he followed that, even though he retired at, you know, He walked away from his professional pursuits at 65. He stayed very connected. He was a speaker. He ran basketball camps. He did a lot of community work. And he had a constant support network, even though his wife passed away 10 years later. You could tell that that was a terrible, traumatic event for him. And the rest of his life, he he would always say he's ready to be with her when he passed away. 
he surrounded himself with friends, his big family and professional people. He was a regular at breakfast coffee shop. Everyone knew his name there. And so I think he led a life that allowed for this kind of level of happiness, habit, but also variety because he was still traveling and trying new things. So he's a, a real role model for a number of reasons, I think. I'm really excited about this month's new sponsor, Text Expander, from the folks at Smile Software. If you use a Mac and you ever find yourself typing the same thing over and over, Text Expander is the program for you. It's much more efficient than copy and paste. All you do is create a snippet and then you can share it across all your devices. It works inside of other programs like Word and Mail, so you can create everything from form letters to signatures. I've been using it for years, so I can guarantee you that it's easy to learn and the Smile website has plenty of tutorials. Just visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more. Be sure to tell them that you heard about Text Expander on Brain Science, and if you decide to sign up, you'll get 20% off your first year. John Wooden certainly was a wonderful role model. I'd also like to talk a little bit about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Of course, he played under Wooden at UCLA as Lou Alcindor. His level of professional pursuits was extremely amazing. What he did during a time, you know, over 20 years, an incredible basketball career. But what's interesting, especially about professional athletes, is then you'll retire, let's say, at 35, 40, 45, and you have perhaps over half your life to now lead. And what are you going to do? <laughs> So he's turned to a lot of really interesting activities and pursuits. He's been an author, speaker, and that can be challenging because most of us will not retire at 40 or 50. Even if we would like to, you'd be surprised. You know, What do you do with your life if you are quite literally forced from retirement for physical reasons? And so I think professional athletes, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Kobe Bryant, many of these individuals, are you know high functioning and driven people, and now they're given both a gift of forty or fifty years in front of them, but also a challenge. Like, what are you going to do with that time and make your life meaningful? And it would be wrong to assume that just because they have plenty of money, that it's going to be easy. <laughs> Income and wealth can certainly make your life easier in terms of putting food on the table. But it certainly doesn't lead to happiness, and a lot of the research shows that as long as you're making over a certain amount of money, you can be just as happy as people who are making a lot of money. And I think that's also a point I touch on in my book, that successful aging is not necessarily related to fame. And in fact, many people who have extreme levels of wealth or fame end their life early because they are still looking for that high that they can't reach, that they've had experience with. Again, it comes down to having balance in your life. And sometimes that's through professional pursuits. Sometimes that's through family. Those are the things that really are keys to successful aging. And you talked about exercise. I think another one that's come up often in my previous episodes on this topic is the importance of our social connections. Absolutely. Especially as we get older, loneliness and isolation can be a big issue. And in fact, some researchers compare it to smoking a pack of cigarettes every day. But it's a silent killer because you're not experiencing physical symptoms necessarily and you might not tell people that you're just lonely. People approach that differently. Some people will then seek out joining a group or going out for lunch with friends where some people will sit in front of the TV and that can be a really an issue. And social support is important for a variety of reasons. It can be stimulating. It's important to have people who care about you, who know your, you know, your health. And if they don't see you for a couple of weeks, they'll be concerned. It can also stimulate levels of curiosity that you'll have conversations with people that you might not normally have. So social support is really a, a, an important thing, but you kind of have to seek it out in your own ways. Not everyone wants to join a book club necessarily. Some people want to have professional interactions, whereas other people prefer more social interactions. Many people might get it from physical exercise, a walking group or seeing regulars at the gym. 
And that sort of interaction is important, and it can often be something that we lose when we retire. So some of these small professional interactions that you might have at the water cooler, once you retire, you don't have those opportunities. And it's very difficult sometimes for people to pick up the phone and call someone. Many people don't really have a close friend who's physically close as well, where you can just call them up and arrange a time to meet. And I think we're also deceived by social media and the internet that we'll be getting plenty of emails every day. We might have lots of friends on Facebook, but those aren't the sorts of interactions that really do matter. So at the end of the day, you might feel like you've connected with people, but you're not having that same quality of connection that you might have with face-to-face communication and conversation. And one of the things that stood out for me when I was reading your book and the discussion of why many older people are actually happier you mentioned that the friendships that they have tend to be a little bit more selective? Yeah, I think as we get older, for a variety of reasons, we're more selective with how we use our time. And, you know, when we're younger, we might have more friends, 30, 40, 50 friends, but how many of them are really good friends? And then as we get older, we do really want to spend time with the people who matter the most. They know us the best. Your social network might be pruned down or reduced, but the quality hopefully will be maintained. And that's something that's really important as we get older. And it seems to me like that would be a habit we might want to begin cultivating sooner rather than later. Absolutely. And I think we're so busy in our lives, especially you know when we're balancing career and a young family, that we don't stay in touch with college friends or even friends that are in our neighborhood cultivating those relationships can be very important because those are the people who are hopefully going to be around when you're 60, 70, 80. Or if they're not, you'll wish you had those opportunities again to you know spend more time with the people who are... I mean, that is the downside of successful aging and living a long life. A lot of older people will say that now their friends are dying and that's not fun. But it also reminds you that life is finite and you want to spend it doing the things you enjoy with the people you enjoy spending your time with. And older people I know that I consider to be role models say that it's important to have younger friends as well as the friends of your same age group. (laughs) Not just because of the practical reason of people your age might be dying off, but just for the mental stimulation. And the opportunity to share your wisdom. Sure. Diversity both in age, background, political point of view, all sorts of things that can lead to interesting conversations, but also putting you in positions you might not think of. But I think pairing younger people with older people, like you said, can be beneficial for sharing wisdom in both directions, because wisdom is not just experience over time. Younger people can have certain forms of wisdom that older adults don't experience. Older adults might benefit from seeing what the world is like from a 20, 30-year-old's point of view. And it's happening more and more, especially, as I mentioned in the book, with housing shortages in big cities like New York City, where rent is very high. Oftentimes, it's older people who have apartments with an extra room, and younger people can benefit by living in these situations, helping older people with certain aspects of their life, and then the younger people can benefit because older people can help them with other aspects. That's the model we should be moving towards is how we can benefit by being around each other. And you're right, having friends of different ages, even if you're young, it's important to have older friends. And if you're your old, it's important to have people who are younger. And sometimes that's experienced just through family dynamics of having children and grandchildren. But oftentimes people want to have friends outside of the family because those are people you can connect with in ways that are different than some family responsibilities. So one question that came up for me while I was reading the chapter in the book about retirement and its hazards and advantages, in the research you've seen, is there a difference between men and women? There certainly are gender differences, and it's it's hard to completely attribute it to like differences in male versus female brains, and I, I'm hesitant to go into that domain. But there certainly are differences in terms of the number of friends people have, how younger people, well, as we age, how we approach retirement. 
So older adults will often have challenges with leaving a workforce, and that can be especially difficult for someone who's played, you know, a big role in a professional career. They might not have as much familiarity with spending so much time at home, and sometimes there can be differences between men and women that way. And so it can hit people in different ways. And it's not simply all about men versus women, but it depends really what role you played in a household and a professional career. Sometimes men have smaller social circles or more of their social circle comes from their professional background. And sometimes that can be a challenge as you retire or phase out from a professional career. Yeah, I have observed this. My husband was retired for seven years before he died. And it was, to my point of view, not good for him to have retired, even though it was something he wanted to do. Without getting into any details, my overall, looking back on it, I would just say it was bad for him. It seems like more women of the same age, they may have worked, but they've also had to juggle all these other things. So when they retire... They already have all these other things, whereas men tend to put everything into that identity of their work. Maybe that will change moving forward, but I think that that probably is true for the people who are the older generations now. I mean, the really old people, maybe women didn't work at all, and then the baby boomers, a lot of them worked, but they also raised their children. And it may be cultural. I'm not saying it's about the brain. It's maybe cultural gender roles, but I know my female friends who are retired, none of them are suffering from, oh, now what do I do? Right. No, I think it's an excellent point. And it's something that's been seen many times that it can be a dangerous thing, retirement. And sometimes for people who have this tie to a professional role, I think that's an important point is as we shouldn't think about successful aging when we're 70, 80, 90. It's kind of an investment you make when you're 30, 40, 50. What would you do if you didn't have your job? Who would be the people you'd spend time with? And you can't say, well, I'm a busy at work now, but in 10 years, I'll spend time with my children. Those days go by fast. And then it's not also necessarily healthy to you know, move away from your social support to be around grandchildren or children who are not accustomed to having you around. So I think those are other challenges that you need to think through carefully just retirement at 65, it really depends who you are and what you're doing and what your career is. Some people should change careers. Some people can work part-time, but it's a challenge when we have these boundaries that we're thinking that, you know, this is what I now should do because I'm 65. So everybody past a certain age wants to know how they can stay sharp. How can science, the science of aging, help us figure out what really works? There's a lot of things out there we can do, and we need to figure out which are the things that are going to have the biggest effect. And, you know, if you look in the newspaper or on the Internet, there's always a new study about some breakthrough on how coffee, red wine, pomegranate juice can enhance longevity. And there might be some truth to those things, but the question you need to ask is really by how much and really, you know, how much chocolate do I need to eat to get these benefits? <laughs> Sometimes it just doesn't make sense. It's not practical or drinking more red wine is going to cause more troubles for other parts of your life. So I think the best thing we can do are things that we do have control over and some of that is habits. So I think the best thing we know from the science is staying physically active and it doesn't have to be, you know, jogging and hiking swimming, it's really just walking and it's getting some movement. And if you can combine that with some sort of social element, maybe if you need the motivation to walk with a friend two or three, four times a week, that can be really beneficial. You can have good conversations and you can notice that some days you're doing better than other days. I think another potential breakthrough has to do with computer-based brain training. And there's a lot of emphasis on that right now, but I think the evidence is very limited in terms of how much time you might spend playing these games and how that can then help your memory for the things you care about. So I'm very cautious in my book to recommend any of these programs because to date there's no research that shows that playing these games improves memory for the things you care about. You definitely get better at the game and it feels like you're getting better at something. 
But those skills don't transfer over to being able to remember names or where you put your keys or take your medication. And if anything, more screen time can lead to being more sedentary, which we know takes time away from walking. So I think while that is hailed as the future and it has potential, especially if it's like incorporated with some sort of physical movement, which a lot of these games are starting to do, we need to be cautious. And I think it's it's interesting because if I told you there's a new pill you could take and it will improve memory, it'll improve mood, it'll enhance your life, you'll live 15 years longer, I think everyone would say, yes, sign me up or sure, I'll buy it. And if I told you it was free, you'd be amazed. And then if I told you it was walking, <laughs> I think some people <laughs> would be either surprised or disappointed because I think people feel that science should deliver a pill or something that's going to just make you stronger and better and healthier without you having to put in a little bit of time. Yeah, that's an ongoing frustration for physicians. <laughs> that's what people want. Yeah, and, and I can understand the appeal of it. I mean, I would want it too, but there's side effects of any medication. There's You treat one thing and something else pops up. So things like walking have big effect sizes. Like That means it's not just going to help your memory. It's going to help your balance. It's going to help your mood. It's great to be outside. It's fine to do it inside on a treadmill. If, and these things can have big effects on a lot of important things in your life, whereas I think one pill or one treatment can help you with certain things, but it's not going to have these long-term benefits. So we learn to walk at an early age. And I think if we can keep that habit going as long as we can, I think that's the best thing you can do to stay well. Are there any other habits that you really strongly recommend? Habits are tough to break. They're tough to implement. But I think things like having moderation can be very important. So even if you have a good habit or a bad habit, you might not be able to break it completely. We know some habits like smoking are really things that are not going to help you age well, despite some of the people that I spoke to in my book who you know, smoked regularly or drank alcohol regularly and lived. They're probably outliers, but it does show that it's not like there's one. The one thing is not to look for the one thing. <laughs> <laughs> and even though I, I think walking is a great thing, there are people who don't walk all the time and live a long, healthy life. But they're probably doing other things, and they might be making up for lack of physical health with being, you know, in good spirits or having a good approach to life. So being well-rounded is probably an important thing, and that's what we spend the, kind of the first half of our life developing, our attitudes about aging and what we can do to age well and enjoy our later years. Alan, is there anything else you'd like to share before we close? Well, I think we covered a lot, and uh, I'm really excited about this topic. I'm always interested to hear what other people have to say because, and that's really why I wrote this book, you know, Better With Age, is to focus on the things that can improve or get better with age, despite the fact that we have a lot of negative attitudes about aging and there's a lot of things that can be challenging. Having a positive perspective can lead us to do things that can make us age well. Do you have any advice for students who might be interested in studying the psychology of aging? Yeah, I think it's really good to get involved early with some positive role models. There's a lot you can do that you can help people, especially in nursing homes and retirement communities. But I think finding old age role models can be really important. And in classes I teach at UCLA, that's what we do in the first week, is we identify role models we have for what it means to age well. And sometimes it's a grandparent, sometimes it's a professional colleague, sometimes it's a public figure. And then we analyze why is that person a good example and what sorts of questions might you want to ask them. And then if possible, go and ask that person <laughs> those questions. Spending time around older people can be very rewarding. It can give you a picture of what your life might be like as we get older. So I think having an old age mentor can be very helpful and illuminating. And that's something to do sometimes early in life, especially if it's a grandparent, if you're lucky enough to have a parent or grandparent who you can still talk to about these things. But sometimes it's, you know, just the random person who lives down the street or the teacher or the, the coach you had. Surrounding yourself with older people can actually be very beneficial. Other than reading your book, if listeners are interested in getting in touch with you, are you open for emails or do you prefer other methods? 
Absolutely. Email is a great way to get in touch with me. And, you know, that's why I wrote this book is if people are interested in learning more, a good third of the book are references to the latest research and the interviews I did. I'm always interested to hear what people have to say. Great. Well, then I'll be sure to include that in the show notes. I really appreciate the time that you've spent with me and, and your book is a great contribution to this discussion. That's great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks for interviewing me. No matter what your age, Alan Castell's book, Better With Age, The Psychology of Successful Aging, is a book worth reading. One key idea in this book is that our attitude toward aging has a huge influence on whether we experience happiness and wisdom as we get older. No matter what your age, there are two things you can do to promote your own success. Cultivate a positive attitude toward aging and develop healthy habits like regular exercise and life-work balance. One great thing about this book is that it's chock full of positive role models. So if you lack positive role models in your personal life, you will definitely want to read this book. Castell explores the work of others in his field, especially Laura Cartenson and Ellen Langer. I'm going to include links to their books in the show notes, but I want to talk briefly about why many older people are actually happier. In particular, I want to talk about the value of what he calls a positivity bias, which is the tendency to seek out the positive. This is something researchers have found consistently, and it's worth knowing about since it is possible to cultivate at any age. Happy older people tend to see the good in others. They also tend to focus on good news rather than what's wrong with the world. This might surprise you because it goes against the stereotype of the grouchy old man or woman who is constantly talking about how things used to be. Needless to say, that's not the positive role model you're looking for. It's true that the tendency to focus on the good in others can make older people more vulnerable to scams and con artists. But overall, focusing on the good in others is a habit that can help one to build better and more satisfying social connections. So my big takeaways from this book are as follows. First, attitude matters a lot. It's never too young to begin preparing for successful aging. Doing things that make you feel younger is good for you. Walking is more valuable than doing cognitive training on your computer. In fact, walking has much more impact than anyone ever imagined. Also, social connections are essential. A few important relationships is better than many superficial ones. You have to use your energy selectively and don't forget to cherish your family if possible. Finally, don't forget to look for role models and mentors of successful aging. And as I mentioned earlier, Better With Age is full of role models, including their stories and advice. I would love to hear what you think about this episode. You can send me feedback at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com, voicemail at speakpipe.com forward slash Doc Artemis, and you can post to our Facebook fan page. As I record this, I'm very hopeful that next month's episode will be an interview with Antonio Damasio. He is one of my most requested guests, and even though I have often featured his work, this will be his first time on Brain Science. If you're new to Brain Science, I hope you will visit the website at brainsciencepodcast.com. You can find all the back episodes as well as a complete list of who has been on the show in the past. As I mentioned last month, brain science relies on word of mouth to reach new listeners. So I really appreciate it when you share the show with others. One thing that helps our rankings in Apple Podcasts is listener reviews. But I know it takes extra effort to post a review in iTunes. That's why everyone who posts a review and sends me a screenshot at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. If you send me a screenshot, you're eligible for an Amazon gift card. Finally, before I close, I want to thank 
those of you who support my work financially via premium subscriptions, Patreon, or direct donations. If you want to learn how you can support the show, please visit brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations. If you are a Patreon supporter, I need to remind you that in January, we went to a tier system. Unfortunately, Patreon didn't automatically assign current supporters to the correct tier. And I'm not allowed to do that myself. So if you're eligible for episode transcripts or ad-free audio, be sure you go to patreon.com forward slash docartemis to update your account. Finally, I want to remind you that Brain Science is now available in Pandora. You can subscribe there just like you do in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcasting app is. If you use an app where you can't find Brain Science, please let me know so I can fix that. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to talking with you again next month. Brain Science is copyright 2019 to Virginia Campbell, MD. You can copy this episode to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. The new theme music for the Brain Science Podcast is Mindfire by Tony Catraccia. You can find his work at syncopationnow.com.